You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Appreciate those of you that prayed for me last week as I traveled up to Snowbird and preached to their church at Red Oak uh, last Sunday night. Um, They're actually beginning their own series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, this evening, so uh, excited for them to be kind of walking this journey uh, at the same time that we are. Um, Last week we looked at the the ways that Christ comes and fulfills the law, right? We talked about him fulfilling it for us. Uh, We talked about him keeping the Old Testament relevant in that uh, the things that he begins to address in the Sermon on the, um, on the Mount are uh, commands that are rooted in the Old Testament, right? And so uh, when he begins to talk about uh, what it looks like for us to not be guilty of murder, uh, it's rooted in what we find in Exodus chapter 20, and yet Jesus expounds upon that law and helps us to see not just the letter of it, but the spirit of it as well, right? And so he talks about the, the responsibility that we have to, to really attack our emotions so that we don't attack other people. Um, that we're to pursue peacemaking, we're to pursue reconciliation, we're not to, to harbor anger and ill will towards somebody because it's uh, essentially murder, that it's to, to, to hold on to that type of anger is, is to break the, the, really the spirit of the law when he says that you shall not murder. Um, we talked about the exceeding righteousness uh, needed beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. And so that brings us to um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Um, and I want to read for us our text today uh, before we jump in. It says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Our summary sentence for today is that Jesus calls Christians to be people known for commitment, specifically when it comes to fighting sin and fostering relationships so that others have confidence in our reliability to do what we say with pure intentions. Jesus calls Christians to be people known for commitment, specifically when it comes to fighting sin and fostering relationships so that others have confidence in our reliability to do what we say with pure intentions. For our kids, Christians are to be known for purity and reliability. I think you see this theme of commitment running through uh, these three sections here. So if you've got a Bible that kind of breaks down the sections and titles those sections, you're going to see maybe a title for lust, a title for divorce, uh, a title for oaths, right? Um, but I think collectively, you see all three of these sections, there's a, there's a, um, a call to commitment um, that I think runs through these sections, right? A commitment to fight sin, a commitment to be very intentional in how we fight sin, uh, to fight lust, to fight our desires, to fight temptation. Um, there's also a, a, a commitment that's um, expected within our marital relationships, right? That we, we fight to remain together. And we saw this in the Old Testament when we looked at the minor prophets, right? Uh, specifically in Malachi. We saw how uh, God has an expectation that when we enter into marriage that we stay within those marriages, right? That he's not, um, he's not advocating or, or allowing for what we might call easy divorces. There's provisions in the law where uh, Moses allowed for Israelites to get out of marriages, but we'll see specifically that it was tied to specific offenses, um, but overall, the expectation, the, the, the norm was to be for God's people to remain committed to each other when they enter into marriage. And then I think you see a commitment to your own word in this section about oaths, right? That uh, we're to be people who, who say yes and we mean yes and we follow through with our yeses. We're individuals who say no, we mean no, and we follow through with our no's. 
Um, so there's a commitment expectation, I think, that we see that Jesus lays forth for his followers, that uh, we're known as people of commitment. Uh, we fight sin with a, with a committed attitude. We, we remain in our marriages with a committed attitude, and we remain true to our word with a committed attitude. We, we, we're intentional to follow through with the things that we say. As way of introduction, I think Jesus is speaking to a culture here, uh, particularly in these first two sections with lust and divorce. He speaks to a culture that was very anti-adultery. Um, but uh, their hearts are deceitful, um, and they certainly are, are sinful as, as much as we are today, and they had found ways to kind of underdefine what adultery is, right? They had, they had basically limited adultery to a very specific definition, and if they as long as they weren't guilty of committing that, then they were okay. Then their activity was permissible, right? So they could, they could think about things and dwell upon things and meditate upon things in their heart and their mind, but not actually carry it out, and it was okay. Or instead of carrying out these activities, they could get out of their marriages so that they could then carry out these activities and it wouldn't technically be labeled adultery, right? Because they had severed the marital relationship that would have uh, caused this activity to violate the covenant they had made with their spouse, and therefore it would fall into the category of adultery. So let's just sever that. Let's give them the certificate of divorce so that I can now carry out and do the things that I want to do without guilt, right? So they kind of underdefined adultery, but they took adultery seriously. I think this message is even more difficult today because I think today Jesus and his message speaks to a culture that's far more okay with adultery than ever. Um, I don't know that Jesus had to convince his audience that adultery was wrong. I think he was trying to convince them that adultery is more than what you think it is, right? For a lot of our uh, Christian culture today, we almost have to start with this, with this argument that adultery is wrong, right? And then we can further define what adultery even is, right? We're, we're continually seeing uh, more and more um, similarities between how the church lives and how marriages work within the church and, and how they look within just the lost culture, right? Unfortunately, there's, there's, there's less and less differentiation between the two. Um, adultery is certainly forbidden in Scripture. Um, God gives the, the physical relationship between a male and a female, a husband and a wife, uh, through marriage as a good gift. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't pervert that with lust and divorce. Don't pervert these good gifts, marriage, and the physical relationship that comes with that. Don't pervert it with lust and divorce. Um, we, what we see here is that premarital, extramarital relationships, they're prohibited. Um, but, but what I want us to be very careful of, because as we talk through this and, 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 and read through what Jesus is talking about here, I'm not ignorant enough to think that like, we won't have people sitting in here in this room or in our surrounding rooms that are maybe guilty of some of this, right? And I think we would, we would err if we hear this message and hear it from a, a law standpoint, that here's the righteousness that you have to live up to, and if you fall short of this, um, then you're not okay. Uh, while, while those things are true, obviously, right, we are, giving, we are given these commands and laws from the God of the Old Testament that we talked about in the Minor Prophets, who was a God who was slow to anger, right, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So what I would want you to hear in regards to these commands is that as we fall short, because every single one of us does, right? Every single one of us falls short of what's being described here, um, that we, we were able to run to a God of forgiveness and mercy, right? A God who can heal us of our past, a God who can heal us of our present, right? And a God who can protect us from a potential future, right? So I want you to understand that as we read through this, like we are, we are filtering this through what we know about God, right? The provision is that we can be forgiven of this, right? We can experience his mercy, but the real guilt that we see here necessitates real forgiveness, but it also necessitates real repentance too, right? We can't expect to be forgiven uh, if we are also committed to remaining in some of this activity that we see here today, all right? So let's get into uh, these three sections and We'll see how the commitment piece, I think, ties in uh, to all three sections. So number one, we want to be uh, people who are known for purity. Be a person who is known for purity. 
He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus expounds upon uh, pretty closely a quotation from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, right? That we uh, shall not commit adultery. Um, but what they, had, what they had failed to apply was even the further commandment about the coveting piece, right? That we're not allowed to, to covet uh, somebody else's spouse. We're not allowed to covet outside of that marital relationship, right? And so they had, they had minimized adultery to a specific activity. Hey, if we can avoid this, then we're not guilty of breaking this. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who has already looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He then goes on to talk about, in verses 29 and following, the measures that should be taken for protection. Um, drastic measures, right? radical measures that are meant to be taken in order for protection to be enjoyed. Uh, with the Again, the caveat being, if you'll do this, it's better to endure this than to have your whole body thrown into hell, he says in verse 29. Than to have your whole body go into hell, he says in verse 30. In order for us to be people of purity, I think first it necessitates us seeing the depth and severity of sin. The depth and the severity of sin. Now, what's being described here? Obviously, we understand uh, uh, what lust is, right? The, the idea of looking and thinking upon desires that you long to carry out that are off limits, right? It doesn't have to be uh, limited solely to the physical relationship between a male and a female, right? It can, it, it can be applied to other things. I think in the context, it's very specifically talking about that here right? Um, and I'll try to remain as vague as possible in what we're talking about, because I, I know we've got our kids in here, and I don't want to create conversations that you're not ready to have, right? But I also want to give you the opportunity to have conversations that may need to be had, right? But l- lust is simply the looking and the thinking upon desires that we long to carry out, but they're off limits. Um, they're off limits, specifically because God has made them off limits to us, right? And so we, we dwell upon these things, we contemplate these things, we meditate upon these things potentially. It continues to breed discontentment in our heart and minds, right? We're discontent with what God is allowing us to do, uh, and we long for strictly the things that we can't do. And Jesus communicates a high standard for the physical relationship between a male and a female, between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife here. Um, he creates this physical relationship. He gets to regulate it. And we know from Scripture, if we, and this is where, man, I think this, this topic, is, this, this, this piece is such a, it's a thing that runs through all aspects of our culture, right? Um, and, and how we respond to what God has said about the physical relationship between a male and a female says so much about the faith and trust that we have in him. Right? When we believe what he says is good for us and we discount what the enemy says is good for us, and it's, it's, it's us regularly playing out the conversation in the Garden of Eden. Right? God says, this is for you, this is not for you. Right? And the enemy says, why is that not for you? Because that's the best thing for you. Why would God hold that back from you? Right? And the conversation plays out in our mind probably on a daily basis for some of us. Right? And, and the decision that has to be made on a daily basis is, I believe what God says. I believe in his goodness. I believe that he's not this, this cosmic killjoy who's trying to hold me back and withhold things from me that would make me happy and please me and bless me, that he has my best intentions at heart. He is working all things for my good, right? And so it's an opportunity on a daily basis for us to apply that, for us to live that out, for us to demonstrate that type of faith. He creates the physical relationship. He regulates it to bless us, not to rob us. And when we meditate and try to, uh, we meditate on desires that we can't fulfill, um, Jesus says it's, it's still categorized as adultery, even though we haven't carried out the deed, right? So meditating on the desire, carrying out the deed, they're not identical in nature, but both compromise the standard of purity that God desires for us, right? So Jesus isn't insinuating that, hey, if you're going to think about it, you might as well go ahead and do it because it's the same thing, right? He's not, he's not advocating for you to just go ahead and, and go to the extreme with what you're thinking about. But what he is trying to, uh, he is trying to, to, to grasp the hearts of these people and saying, look, just because you're not carrying it out doesn't mean that you're free and pure, 
right? You're giving yourself to this stuff. You're allowing your heart to become discontent. He knows if that's allowed to fester long enough, it will lead to it being carried out, right? And so he wants the people to attack this so that it doesn't reach that point. And why this is so important for us is that the path of impurity leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Jesus is saying, deal with this drastically yourself in your own life to avoid God dealing with you drastically. I think for, for the longest time, the church has maybe made the error of trying to guide its young people into purity with consequences and threats for what might could happen, right? That if you, if you violate God's commands, uh, sickness is a possibility, um, pregnancy is a possibility, uh, shame from your friends is a possibility. We live in a day and an age now where, where those things don't bear the same weight as they used to anymore, right? We, we, we've seen medical advancements where uh, most diseases can be treated, uh, medical advances where uh, pregnancies can be avoided and terminated if need be, um, and honestly, in a culture now where it's not all that shameful anymore for, for activity like this to be discovered, Right? And so it's like, man, what motivation is left if those are the, the thrust of our message for why someone should remain pure? Hey, well, I can check this. This isn't an issue anymore. This isn't an issue anymore. This is, I guess I don't have to remain pure, right? Whereas what, what Jesus says here hasn't changed, right? That, that this type of behavior, this type of activity leads somewhere, right? And, and that path hasn't changed. That to, that to go down this path, path leads to destruction, it leads to judgment. It leads to God's wrath. On the contrary, God's will for our life is that we be radically sanctified in this area. Right? Not just that we're not guilty of some specific acts, but that there's really not even a hint about this type of activity in our life. Right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you." And we see the consequences of, of violating this. It's a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing to go against what God has said, to go against what his Holy Spirit is leading in us through the work of sanctification. If we're a believer, stuff can't even be named among us. Can't even be present there, right? To see the depth, the severity of this, why it's so important that we get this right in our life, because then we're motivated to take the extreme measures that Jesus talks about, right? Purity necessitates taking uncommon measures to avoid destructive paths. Purity necessitates taking uncommon measures to avoid destructive paths. You have to see it as a radical problem to embrace radical solutions. Now, Jesus addresses how we handle our eyes and how we handle our hands here in Matthew chapter 5, and he tells us, if need be, we need to get rid of both if they are leading us into sin. He knows, Jesus knows, that impurity um, begins with our God-given desires being provoked in ways that are contrary to God's plans, right? So when we 
led into the temptation for lust and covetousness and impurity. It's sparked by our God-given desires, and he's given us the God-given ways to carry out those desires, right? Paul talks about this. If you're, if you're called to singleness, stay single. If you're not called to singleness, get married, right? You need to get married. Because he's given us those ways to carry out those desires. But when sin enters and temptation comes, it provokes these God-given desires to be carried out in contrary ways to his plans. I put in my notes, what our eyes see frequently determines what our hands do. What our eyes see frequently determines what our hands do. Right? And so he, he mentions both of these things. Be careful what you see. Be careful what you expose yourself to because it will provoke desires potentially that are contrary to God's plans. And if that festers long enough, your hands will then carry out these things. Right? We have to be careful about the things we put before us and, and not be shocked that if we're not going to filter what we put before us, don't be shocked when when either ourselves or our family members begin to carry out some of these things, right? Whether it's the songs we listen to, the TV shows that we watch, the movies that we watch, the books that we read. Man, parents, don't, don't think that you've covered all your bases if you've got the internet locked down and you've got the parent guardians on the TVs, right? Um, the content of the books that come out today that are being exchanged uh, amongst our teens and our preteens carry messages uh, that pervert our thinking, Right? Me and another teacher were, were talking uh, just recently about a, a, a series of books that some of the kids are reading. And maybe it looks innocent enough, but the more you delve into it, you find that the type of relationships that are being advocated um, are contrary to God's plans. Right? The, the, the homosexual relationships that are being advocated, even between animals in these, in these books. Right? They're contrary to God's plans. But what does it do? It lowers your, your sensitivity to it. If you can get involved in the story, get involved in the characters, get involved in how they are carrying out this, the, the, the plan and the narrative, right? You come away from that going, I don't see why that's so bad. I don't, I don't see why that's a problem, right? It's, it's a problem because the one who created it says that it is, right? And he has creator rights to determine and to regulate what's best for us. Jesus is saying the desires of the heart need to be purified. The actions of the body need to be disciplined. He talks about cutting the eyes out, chopping off hands. Um, Not because this fixes the problem, right? Man, because if this did fix the problem, it it might be uh, commendable to immediately have this type of activity happening in churches all the time, right? If this could fix some of our deepest problems to just remove body parts, then, hey, let's let's, let's have that uh, every, you know, application Sunday, Right? But it doesn't, and I don't think Jesus intends for us to think that it does, right? But it, but it is potentially um, worth mentioning that, like, extreme measures sometimes have to be taken until the heart can be fixed, right? When I've counseled uh, men in our church, young men in our church who are, are dealing with, with temptation and, and giving in to temptation, we talk about, hey, we're going to have to take some extreme measures, not because the extreme measures are going to fix this, right? But we've got to cut this off now so then the Holy Spirit can work on your heart and get it right, right? But we've got to cut off every outlet for you to commit sin now, right? As your heart catches up with this, right? And so Jesus said, look, if you've got to take extreme measures to stop sinning, take extreme measures. Attack the issue specifically. Attack it drastically, Um obviously, I've never gotten to the point where I've told somebody, I think we need to cut your eyes out or I think we need to cut your hand off, right? But I have talked with people who we are so many steps before getting to that point who are hesitant to take those steps, right? And I don't, that's, that, seems, that seems a little extreme to do that. I don't know if I really need to do that. I'm just telling you, Jesus says, hey, if it gets to the point where you got to cut something off, then do that versus continuing to engage in this activity, right? Jesus takes it real serious. He says, you've got to cut this off. You've got to get this in your life. It can't be named among you, right? Purity is what you're to be known for. Deal with the temptations immediately, decisively. Um, Romans chapter six, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought 
from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness, right? He's saying, present, the, present your body parts to God for righteousness, your eyes, your hands, make sure they're being used for holy purposes. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, let us uh, walk properly as is in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify, to gratify its desires. Don't give your flesh an opportunity to do what it wants to do, right? Some of you that were in youth group at Mount Gilead with me will remember the sermon that I referenced, it comes from 1 Samuel 15, and it was preached by John MacArthur. And it's the story of uh, Samuel and Saul and the conversation they have about God's commands for what Saul was supposed to do, right? He was supposed to kill everybody from this group of people. Wasn't supposed to save anything, right? These were God's commands to him. Well, what does he do? He saves the king. He saves some of the treasures, right? And he spends it as, hey, we wanted to do this for God. We wanted to do this for God's glory. We, we brought these treasures. We're going to sacrifice it to God. We brought the animals. Like, it's all going to be a sacrifice to God. And Samuel's like, that's not what God asked. Like, God said to kill everything, kill everybody, and burn everything and get rid of it. And then the story takes, like, this, this like, rated R turn. Like, you can't make a movie out of this and let your kids see this because uh, it says that Samuel takes the king and hacks him to pieces. The picture being, like, we are going to deal with this right now, right? Like we are going to obey God to the extreme and he kills the guy and cuts it up and says, look, like this has to be weeded out. Like we can't have this tolerated, right? And so John MacArthur talks about like that, that, that we have to embrace that type of mentality in our own life. We have to cut it out. We have to hack it up. We can't tolerate it. We can't let it fester because if we do, it'll eventually potentially get carried out even into the actions of our body, not just the thoughts of our body. Talk to you about the discontentment piece that I think gets bred when we give ourselves over to lust. When we focus on what we can't have, we talked about acting like Adam and Eve in the garden, but I think we even act, we even act like what we see like our children do sometimes, like our babies do sometimes. Like Apollos is in this stage right now where um, if he can't have something that he wants, he'll, he'll lay down in the floor and pitch a fit He's just screaming and crying. Like, he thinks, like, if I do this long enough, you're going to give me those gummies. You're going to give me that banana, right? Like, like I'm going to win out here, right? And you have to pick him up, and you have to take him out of the kitchen, and, and you try to have a conversation with him, which you can't fully understand right now, right? Um, but but it, it, it makes me think of that picture when we so oftentimes give ourselves to the enemy's thought process, and we focus on what we can't have versus all the things that we do have. Remember when we talked about in Genesis how— I told you I grew up with this mentality that um, all the trees that they were supposed to eat from had vegetables and all the things that don't taste good hanging on them, right? Like, I was like, hey, here's all the trees for you to eat. This one's got broccoli on it. This one's got squash on it. But you can't eat of the candy tree that's in the middle of the garden. And it looks so good and it smells so good and it would be so good. But you can't eat that one. You got to eat all this stuff that's good for you. But remember what it says in Genesis? It says that every tree looked good to them. Every tree tasted good to them. There was one tree that they couldn't eat of, but they weren't being deprived of anything. Every tree was good to the eyes. Every tree was good to taste. But if we're not careful, we buy into the enemy's lie that, hey, God's withholding the thing that we need most from us. Right? Paulus doesn't realize we're about to give him dinner. He doesn't need another pack of gummies going to spoil the dinner that he's going to enjoy. He just doesn't comprehend it, doesn't see that it's coming here shortly, right? The implication here, if your path to heaven is determined by your current sexual path, will you arrive there? No, we're not talking about your past history, your current activity right now. Jesus says, lust, adultery, and it leads to your body being thrown into hell. Are you taking the necessary measures to put yourself on the right path? Proverbs 6.32 talks about the, the, um, the nonsense, I guess, of adultery. Look what it says in Proverbs 6.32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys 
himself. Jesus says sin leads to hell. And the idea behind this is get out of there. Get out of there, right? A couple of weeks ago, we're playing uh, football at the youth event um, at the Conaway house, right? And so we've got some, some dads, some youth playing some backyard football. We got a fire going as well, right? Seemed appropriate at the time. We're going to have some marshmallows and some s'mores, right? And Adam McLeod runs a crossing route and Bobby throws a pass to him. And Adam McLeod, as committed of his man as he is, is committed to catching that pass, right? Falls into the fire trying to make this catch, right? And the first words out of my mouth are, get out of there, right? Like, I don't know if he realizes what he has just done to himself, but I'm screaming at him, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. Why? Because he's going to get burned, right? Like, he he has gone down the path of destruction. He doesn't realize it, but he's jumped into the fire, right? It's like, get out of there, get out of there. And we live in a culture today where people go down this path, right? And, And they excuse their behavior, they excuse their activity, and even excuse it under the, the umbrella of Christianity. I mean, it grieves my heart when I hear people claiming to be Christ followers and yet actively participating in something that is so contrary to God's plan, specifically in this area, right? It's like, they don't go together. They don't go together. Like, it makes me think of the, there for a while, like on social media, you're always seeing that uh, Willy Wonka meme that would pop up. And like, I get this picture in my mind. It's like, tell me more about how your, your sexual decisions don't affect your eternity, right? Like, like tell me more. Like, how, how, how is it different for you than what Jesus says? Because Jesus says, you go down this path, like this is where it leads. It leads to wrath and destruction and punishment, right? Get off that path. And, and the glory of this is that we can get off this path. We can be forgiven. We can experience God's grace and mercy. We don't have to stay on this path, nor are we condemned forever being on this path because we're all on this path at some point. We're all on this path where we give ourselves over to this in a way that, that because Jesus expands this to, to such the, 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 the depth and the level that he does, like we're all guilty of this at some point. We read this passage though, and what I want it to do is to penetrate our heart to say, get off the path in whatever form you're on it right now. Take the drastic measures if you need to, to get out of there. Get out of there. Justin Martyr uh, in the second century was defending Christianity to Antinous Pius. And he said, if you want to see visible proof of the truth of Christianity, observe our chastity. So, so he's on trial before the emperor. And he says, if you want to see visible proof that the gospel changes people, if you want to see visible proof that Christianity is true, Look at the purity of the church is what he says. I don't know if we could appeal to our purity as proof of the gospel changing lives today based on how impure at times the church is. The impurities that are tolerated at times, right? 1 Corinthians 5 talks about the the sin that was being tolerated in that church. Like how dare you tolerate this? This isn't even accepted in in the lost world, right? What a challenging and convicting question. Could we say, to others, if you want to see visible proof that Christianity is true, that the gospel changes people, look at the purity of my life. That should be convicting to us to, to stop and pause and examine, are we taking the necessary measures to remain pure? Number two, be known or be a person known for commitment. Be a person known for commitment. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Old Testament instructions about divorce. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You should not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Right? The Jewish people somehow read that passage and said, oh, we're supposed to give our wife a, a certificate of divorce if we divorce her, versus reading it and saying, oh, we're probably not supposed to get divorced. Right? What they had done in their culture is they had begun to justify this concept of indecency. 
right? And Jesus specifies what we're talking about here is like immorality, sexual immorality, sexual sin, right? What they had twisted this to mean was if you just find anything about your spouse that you don't like, like just, just write a certificate of divorce and you're good. So they have the Old Testament law, but they also have this book that is the, the content of their traditions and interpretations of the law, right? In that book, so not in the Bible, in their interpretation of the Bible book, it said that you could even divorce your spouse if she served a burnt piece of toast, right? Like if you didn't like the way that, that your wife served you a meal, you can get out of that. You can write a certificate of divorce, right? So it had been so loosely applied that basically you could divorce your spouse for anything, what Jesus says here, and then we won't take the time to look at it because it'll, it'll take more time than we have, but in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus expounds upon this uh, topic of divorce more. So Matthew 19, 1 through 12. What Jesus talks about here is, number one, that divorce should be the radical exception. It should not become a cultural norm. It should be the radical exception. So you have the Jewish people that were trying to uphold the, the law of don't commit adultery. So once they desired a different spouse, they found some indecency about the current spouse, even if it was the way that something was done, you know, food served, get out, then go be with this person, be legally married to them so there's no adultery committed. But what does Jesus say? He says, when you divorce for an unbiblical reason, you're still committing adultery, Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying, look, you haven't accomplished anything by trying to take these extra measures to avoid being guilty. You have made yourself further guilty. We live in a culture that regularly affirms adultery and divorce in the name of love. But our understanding of the sanctity of marriage must be rooted in how it was created. Back in Matthew 19, 5, Jesus appeals to why they aren't to be getting divorces like this because he says, look, way back in Genesis, when I created marriage and I created the first man and the first female, like what I said was they are to be joined together as one and they are not to be separated again, right? It's rooted in how marriage was created. The permission or the allowance is for exceptional reasons. And notice that, Man, is, man or woman are not commanded to divorce when adultery or when sexual immorality happens, right? But it is allowed if reconciliation can't happen. I think, I think Jesus would echo the idea of what he says in earlier passage in Matthew 5. We're to be peacemakers. Like we're to seek reconciliation, even if our spouse harms us in the most hurtful way possible and is unfaithful to us, and and impure towards us. And we want to fight for reconciliation, if at all possible. Why? Because it it mirrors the gospel. It shows the gospel. It shows the forgiveness that we have joy in the gospel. But Jesus says if that's not possible, if reconciliation can't happen, he allows for the divorce piece. You work out your differences biblically, and you remain committed to each other, right? So you don't get out of a marriage if, if there's just conflict that can't be overcome, or if both of you decide, you know what, like we're, 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 we're interested in other things now. Jesus says those aren't biblical reasons to leave each other. You work out your differences biblically. You remain committed to each other. Love is the determined commitment to put the other's needs above your own. And when you're doing that, you stay in the marriage. Because number two, divorce can leave both parties in a compromised situation. He says adultery is committed when divorce occurs and remarriage happens if it wasn't biblically broken, right? If that first marriage is not truly broken biblically, then adultery happens when two people separate and try to remarry somebody else. Divorce divides the family. It puts individuals at risk. This new relationship is not necessarily okay. It can't avoid adultery by divorcing and then marrying somebody else. So what we see, a summary of this section, is that um, God's plan is for husband and wife to remain together until death. Adultery allows for separation, but separation for any other reason creates adultery. This allowance is not commanded, and reconciliation should be pursued first, if possible. I think the the thing that I would want us to to understand here is that, do you realize there is no predetermined path to divorce that gives you what you desire? 
There isn't one. You don't get to predetermine a plan for divorce that results in anything good for you. Right? There's, there's no way to construe the situation to say, okay, if I can get my spouse to agree to this, then God can sanction this. Right? Like There is no predetermined path for divorce that gives you what you desire. It doesn't happen. Number three, be a person known for reliability. Be a person known for reliability. And I think both these sections tie into what he now closes with in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In uh, Leviticus 19.12, Deuteronomy 23.23, there's, there's some Old Testament passages about oaths. But in James 5, we see this message kind of echoed again in verse 12. It says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What, what's going on here? What, what's, what's Jesus really trying to address here? Number one, I think he means don't make promises you won't or can't keep. Now, there's certainly times when I think God even demonstrates that it's appropriate to up the ante as far as what's being said from a yes and no standpoint. Um, in, and I'll just kind of throw these out there if you want to look at these passages later. Um, but like when God talks about how he's not going to send a flood again in Genesis 9, 9 through 11, talks about making a covenant and there's oaths that are contained in a covenant. When he talks about sending a redeemer in Luke 1, 68 and 73. When he talks about even the commitment to raising his son in Psalm 16, 10, uh, Acts 2, 27 through 31. Um, maybe Hebrews 6 is the best one for us to take a look at real quick. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Right? There are times when the, the situation dictates a, a more um, intense level of saying yes to something. Right? Like first thing that comes to mind is like a marriage ceremony. Right? We are constructing a ceremony where we are communicating to everybody the severity of what we are committing to do, right? Like we're taking this very serious. I'm committing myself to her. She is committing herself to me. We are making a covenant to, to, to remain together before God, before our friends, and before our family. Um, there's, there's times where it's appropriate to have this type of relationship when it comes to um, uh, like maybe like big purchases. Like I know we were... <laughs> We were in conversation with a, a local church about uh, using some of their facility uh, to expand like our area, right? But what we wanted was a contract that would basically guarantee that what you're saying will be upheld, right? That, that we're going to have a place to meet as a church. We're not going to give up this area and go like meet in your area only to have you jerked that away from us later on, right? Um, and the pastor was unwilling to do that. He said, look, you should just basically kind of take my yes as a yes. And I, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't know you well enough to, to take your yes for a yes right now, right? Like I'm gonna need the contract or else we're staying put. We're staying right where we are, right? Because I don't know you and I don't know that you're gonna carry through with this, right? So there's times where this is appropriate. What's Jesus addressing here? He's addressing the fact that these people had become so inconsistent that they were having to require oaths for basic things that shouldn't be requiring oaths because they were so untrustworthy, right? So they were having to, to swear and have to promise in these extreme measures to get people to believe that they would actually do it. And they were creating a workaround system to where they actually didn't have to carry it out if they didn't want to, right? So the Old Testament talks about how um, 
if you're going to swear upon uh, God that you have to carry it out, right? Or like you're under condemnation. So they were thinking about other things to swear upon. This is why Jesus says, look, like you don't get to swear upon Jerusalem or the king's throne or this or that and think that you have minimized the oath because all those things belong to God. But what they were doing was basically saying, if you make an oath to God or you swear by God, then you have to do that. So if I told Topi, Topi, I'll do this, and I swear upon God's name that I'll do this, it's like, oh, you have to do that, right? But if I said, Topi, I swear upon downtown Sonoy that I'm going to do this, it's like, I know, it's like, I don't really have to do that, right? And so they were, they, were, they were unreliable. They were saying things, committing to things, and then not carrying through, right? And so Jesus addresses this unreliability and says, look, you should be people that can be counted upon. Don't make promises you won't or can't keep. This system had escape clauses built in, and they were taking advantage of it. They were no longer fostering truthfulness. They had weakened the cause of truth and were promoting deceit. Jesus goes further into this, um, Matthew chapter 23, verse 16 through 22. Says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Right? Like this one you're required to keep. If it's the gold in the temple, um, you have to keep it. If it's just the temple, you don't have to. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it, by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. All right? So he's attacking this measure this this message again later in Matthew twenty three. They were trying to find workarounds to not keep their word. Instead, Jesus wants us to demonstrate honesty to avoid needing extra measures for others to trust you. Our consistent character should give confidence to others that we can be relied upon. Which, that means there's an expectation on us to not make loose commitments, right? Like, don't commit to things that we can't do. Don't commit to things that we're not going to carry forward with. The implication is, do we ever say we will do things only to back out because it's inconvenient to carry them out when the time comes? That's what was happening here. People couldn't be trusted. They couldn't be relied upon. And you can kind of see in these three sections, like the commitment and the reliability is something that Jesus expects of his people, right? That a spouse can can expect and can rely upon you to stay in the marriage that others can expect and rely upon you to be pure in your interactions and your dealings with others to the point that when you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. Two points of application, questions for us to ask ourselves. Number one, what protective measures are you currently taking in your life to ensure purity in your relationships? And we want to foster relationships here in our church through our C groups and our D groups that would allow for further accountability to take place within this church where when you need help, when you need encouragement, when you need someone to, to help you work through uh, things that are going on in your life, that you can seek that out. What protective measures are you currently taking in your life to ensure purity in your relationships? Number two, is your calendar structured in such a way that allows for you to be reliable towards your commitments, specifically even commitments to this church? right? Like things that, that you commit to do that you're known as somebody who, who remains committed to it, right? I, I, and this is, I'm going to mention this not as a slight against our church, but as a point of prayer. Um, one of my biggest hesitations right now in moving forward with childcare, right? Because we've got to get back to the point where, where we have some type of childcare provided for the, the little ones so that um, parents can sit and listen and take turns, right? But We've had, we've had difficulty in the past with people keeping their commitments to serve in the nursery. I want to tell you, like, without nursery, like, our attendance is great, right? But, but back when we had nursery and a nursery rotation, like, it wasn't uncommon for people to not be here when they were supposed to be here to help keep the nursery, right? Like, this is a point of prayer. Like, we've got to pray that our hearts and our attitudes and mindsets will be right for us to fully get back to everything. Because here's the thing, why, why, is it, why don't we just stay like this, right? 
because we don't have opportunities for our kids' discipleship classes right now. We don't have opportunities for our youth discipleship classes right now. Why? Because there's adults sitting in those spots right now, right? And for us to be able to have those type of opportunities, we've got to get back to a way where we can provide some childcare for our families so that every inch of our room's not being used right now. But it necessitates us having our calendar structured in such a way where we can honor those commitments, where we can say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be here on this date because this is what I'm committing to do. Right? Jesus says, be known as people who are reliable, who can be counted upon. Psalm chapter 24. Verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? This is a different destination than what Jesus talks about where these activities lead to, right? These other activities lead towards your body being thrown into hell. Psalm 24 gives us a different destination. Who gets to go to the hill of the Lord? Who gets to stand in his holy place? Verse 4, he who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Jesus may have even had in mind this passage as he's talking with the the group of people here, advocating for clean hands, pure heart, honesty, truthfulness, nobody swearing deceitfully, people following through with their commitments, being reliable, being known for purity and commitment and reliability. I want to close our sermon a little bit different today. We're not going to do questions. Instead, I want to I want to have two points of directed prayer for us this morning, um, specifically in the area of our purity, particularly uh, for, for our youth that are growing up in a very difficult culture where, where purity is becoming harder and harder and harder to pursue. Um, as a middle school principal who, who meets with parents and students regularly um, and, and sees uh, these issues being fleshed out in, in, in new ways. Um, you know, I even wrestle with how am I going to protect my kids? How am I going to lead and shepherd my own kids well to where they're not compromised in some of these areas? Right? And I know we have kids right now that are in the, in the, in the midst of it, in the, in the fight of it right now. Um, and so I want to pray for, for our, our church family, particularly in this area. And then secondly, I want to pray um, for our faithfulness within the marriages that, that are here at our church. Man, by God's grace, you know, I've, I've never had to sit down with um, a couple in our church or outside of our church where I've had to counsel somebody who I really thought divorce was looming with. And, and it'll only be by God's grace and mercy that that continues to be the case because the, the, the temptation is strong the enemy is great, right? And it's only if we remain committed to his word and committed to pursuing Christ that, that we stay committed to these marriages. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our own power, right? It's only by God's grace and, and the Holy Spirit's power that we stay committed to each other. And so I want to pray for that this morning too in light of what we've seen here in Matthew chapter five. So I'm going to close this with maybe a, more of an extended time of, of praying right now. Um, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we, we come to you this morning and, and we're grateful and thankful for your word um, because it gives us such insight and knowledge about who you are and your character and what you desire for us. And God, we know that in and of ourselves, our flesh will always seek to justify what we want to do and we'll look for workarounds and look for ways to be excused and to even justifying our minds that we are being holy and righteous and without sin, even though we, we may be right in the midst of it. Lord, we see that that was certainly the case in the time where, where your son was speaking to this crowd, where um, by the letter of the law, they were maybe being obedient. But by the spirit of the law, they were certainly mired in impurity and dishonesty and deceitfulness, selfishness. God, I'm praying that, that we, would, we, would, we would see this passage today and that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Not so that we feel guilt without, with, 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 you know, with despair, but that we experience the, the necessary guilt that would cause us to turn to you. 
for forgiveness and grace and mercy. We don't come running to you for those things until we really see our guilt. And so, God, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. That we would see this broad stroke of what it looks like to be impure. That we would see ourselves in the midst of that somewhere. And we would, we would take the necessary steps and the necessary, uh, make the necessary changes to get out of that. Um, God, I'm praying specifically for our kids and our youth that um, are certainly growing up in a day and age where temptation is at an all-time high and where activity that would have been appalling maybe even only a decade ago is becoming more and more accepted with social media and cell phones and computers and God, I pray that our kids in our church that are believers would, would continue to fight for purity. God, I pray that our parents would have wisdom and guidance and knowledge and knowing how to have these conversations with their kids, to not delay, to not put it off, to not allow this, this message to be heard from somebody else, but would take ownership to shepherd their kids well through this. God, I pray that our kids would see that, that, that earthly ramifications are not reasons to stay pure, to avoid this or to stay away from this. But God, they would submit themselves to you and see that it's your guidance about this topic that demands their attention, that it's, it's necessary for them to follow through because you've said this, not because you're trying to steal something from them or hold something back from them, but because you're the creator of all things. And God, I pray that our kids would increase their faith and trust in you by saying yes to you in this area daily. God, I pray that you'd protect them. I pray that you would allow parents to be able to head off things that would increase temptation. Give them wisdom and knowing how to manage it, God. Lord, I pray for our marriages in our church that you would you would keep spouses fighting for faithfulness towards each other. God, I pray that you would protect us from temptation that would come across our path, temptation we're not even looking for, that the enemy would seek to throw before us. God, I pray that you would protect our hearts from discontentment. God, I pray that we would be models of what it looks like to put the needs and interests of others above our own needs, particularly our spouse. Because God, I believe that if we're living out the, the mindset of Philippians 2 where we are focused on the needs of our spouse, it becomes almost impossible for us to deviate from our spouse. It's only when we become consumed with our own desires and our own needs and, and expectations that aren't met towards us that we begin to allow our eyes to wander. And God, if we allow our eyes to wander, it allows our hands and feet to wander too if we're not careful. And so God, I pray that you would you would increase the love and the faithfulness and commitment within the marriages here represented in our church. God, we want to be able to say to a lost and dying world that we are trying to be salt and light to, hey, look to the purity in our church as a visible sign that the gospel works, that the gospel changes people. God, I pray that, that, that our activity wouldn't detract from the gospel, that instead others would look into our church and say, man, look at those marriages Look at the commitment that, that husband and wife have towards each other. It looks a lot like the gospel that I'm hearing about with Christ in the church. God, I pray that our purity would be something that you could use to adorn the gospel, to point others to the gospel, that they would see our good works and give glory to you in heaven, specifically our good works within our marriages. God, I pray that today's sermon would prevent future sins that could have happened. That you would use today's message to change future behavior and activity. God, we don't get to time travel. We don't get to go back and make changes. But God, I pray that, that today would feel like someone from the future has come to the present and has challenged us to make different decisions than maybe we're currently making that would lead to a different result than what could have happened. God, I pray that we would be people that are committed to being reliable, trustworthy, counted upon,
God, I pray that you would make us these people because we can't do it in our own effort. We can't do it in our own power. But God, you said that your desire is for us to be sanctified, sanctified in these areas. And we know that you do that through your Holy Spirit. So as we, as we seek to work out our own salvation, we trust in you being the power and the source for that work to happen. I pray that you would accomplish that in all of us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.